0: One of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is discovering our identity and calling. Over a millennia and a half ago, St. Augustine famously prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Self-knowledge, God-knowledge, others' knowledge are all kind of tied up together in pursuing what God is asking us to do in this life. Yet so many Jesus followers never actually discover the man or the woman they were created to be. We spend years and waste copious amounts of energy living into a parody of our real, true self, trying so hard to be who we think we should be or who our family or friends or culture tells us we should be or who we wish we could be. In the end we can end up failing at being somebody we're not rather than succeeding at being who we actually are. And Paul, so far, in the letter to the Corinthians, has been working really hard to lay a foundation for the Corinthians that gives them a strong foundation in the gospel. Paul's showing the Christians here in Corinth that all of life's most complex problems and issues can and should be seen through the lens of the gospel. But as the Corinthians are struggling to separate the life that they had come from, the life that they were formerly living, with the new lives that they're now living, the challenge here in this church is they are wrestling with all these landmines of pride and arrogance and haughtiness and a love for spiritual status that's been emerging here in the church. And Paul works really hard to make sure that the Corinthians don't use worldly standards as a metric for success in the Christian life. That's really key. Did you guys catch that? Paul is working really hard to make sure the Corinthians and you are not using worldly standards as a metric for success in the kingdom of God. One of the things that we have said from day one of Anthem is we're going to choose to celebrate different things. We're going to choose to find our success in different things. We're not going to choose to find our success, whether we are succeeding in what God has called us to do, by the amount of people who show up on a Sunday or the amount of money in the bank. That's not how we measure success here at Anthem. We want to celebrate things like new community groups, new churches planted, baptisms, but you'll rarely ever hear us celebrate a large attendance Sunday or how much money we have in the bank. Right? We choose to find our success, and are we being humble, and are we being obedient? And you guys, in your life, how often is it easy to think you are succeeding if you have the lens of the world and the Ventura culture around us? Like some of you guys are buying houses right now, uh, which is an incredible feat in California, but how many of you guys thought as you're buying a housing, we've really made it, we've accomplished this? We like, we got our finances down. We've saved for the right amount of years. Or on the flip side, how many of you guys think you're a failure because you're still renting? How often are we defining success in the kingdom of God by worldly standards? And I would argue when we do that, we're actually forgetting who we really are. We're forgetting our identity and our status in Christ when we start measuring ourselves by the world's standards whether it's a standard of beauty, attraction, image, whether it's a standard of financial success and security, or whether it's a standard of how you're raising your kids and the legacy you have in your kids because they're more successful than, than you are, how often do we get trapped and sucked into thinking, I'm doing a good job because the world tells me I'm doing a good job? And here, the problem is we forget who we are. We forget who we are, we forget what God has done for us to bring us into his family, and we forget how he actually thinks about us. We forget how he defines success. We forget that success is obeying Jesus, even if that looks strange to this world, Our temptation is to draw the world's views into how we live in Christ. And Paul is challenging the Corinthians and probably you to flip that backwards, to flip it upside down, to not actually think about the world looking at you, seeing you as successful or not successful, but looking to Jesus, who you are in him, saying, am I obeying what he's asked me to do? Not am I conforming to some image or some mold that culture tells me I should, but am I conforming to the image and mold of Jesus himself? And for the last few weeks, uh, what Steve was doing this for the last couple of weeks and even before that, uh, Paul has been talking about this rampant, unrepentant sin that is in the body, particularly around sexual immorality. So he's been going after this thing that's not being uh, repented of, that the the church is just allowing to go on, and then he dives into marriage and marital life and divorce and all of that. And here, Paul kind of takes an unexpected turn right in the middle, because next week we're going to jump right back into singleness and marriage and, and, and all of that. But right here in this moment, Paul takes a bit of an unexpected turn, and you can maybe imagine the scenario, because you know, the church in Corinth didn't have one of these. This letter was being read aloud in a gathered setting. And you can imagine the, the context and the situation of having this letter read out loud to a local church and the themes of sexual immorality and marriage and divorce are rolling. And then suddenly Paul shifts to what we have in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. What is is Paul getting at here? He takes a a sharp left turn out of the marriage, singleness, kind of sex conversation into the the life-calling assignment conversation. What is he getting at? And the first question uh, that comes to mind that we should knock out right away as we read verse 17 is, whether Paul is saying that when you give your life to Jesus— Whatever condition you are in, you must stay there. So remember, this is the context of marriage, of singleness. And so is is Paul saying like, however I was saved, I'm locked there forever. And it can look that way, but that's not really at at the heart of what Paul is saying and getting at here because we'll see that play out differently in the examples he gives. But before we get into those examples, starting in verse 18, I want to look at the words that Paul is using to articulate his point here. Paul is saying your role— as a new follower of Jesus, is to live the life that is assigned to you. Read into that a little bit. Your job is not to live somebody else's life. It's to live the life that God has assigned to you. Some of you guys will remember nothing except that, and that is of vital importance. It is not your job to live somebody else's life. When you see how they raise their kids, when you see the success they're having in their career or the house they just bought or whatever, your job is not to sit there and say, I wish I could be just like that. I wish I had that life. I wish I did things the way they did it. Now, it's not wrong to, to, to kind of look at someone who's mature in the faith and say, I want to model my life like that, but it is wrong to say, if I'm not living that life, I'm failing. Because God has assigned you something specific for you. It is not all of your jobs to go to the nations with your life. Some of you may be faithful people here in Ventura, writing checks, sending support, praying for people who are going out. Some of you may be the goers. Your job is not to live somebody else's life, but the life that God has assigned to you. God does not expect you to fulfill the assignment or calling that he puts on someone else's life. He expects you to fulfill your own assignment. This was particularly challenging for Sherry and I when we planted this church. Because uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys know, when you're, when you're in church plant mode and when you're starting something new, you think, we think our calling is everybody's calling. And while we're all called to to embody the gospel, to have the gospel go to us and through us and to be on mission in our cities and to actually be a part of the local church, it's not everybody's call to plant a local church. And that's something we had to wrestle with. And that caused a lot of tension and friction with those who are on our team early because for us, it was this all life-encompassing thing. And for others, it wasn't. They had different callings. What is God calling you to? He doesn't expect you to feel, fulfill someone else's calling and assignment. He expects you to fulfill yours, what he's called you to do. Okay, and this has a value component too. Because your worth in the kingdom of God, your contribution to the church are not measured against other people. Right? Because you don't have a, a good voice and you can't lead worship, you're not less valuable than Zach, who leads us in worship every week. Because maybe you don't have the ability, the giftedness, or even the desire to teach you're not any less valuable than me or than Steve. Right? Your value, your contribution is not measured up against other people, but against your faithfulness and obedience to what Jesus has entrusted to you. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Calling is not something out there in the future. Calling is here and now. Where do you work? You work at a little startup marketing company? You're not called somewhere else. You're called until the Lord changes that. You're called here. Are you married? Do you have kids? You're not called to leave that family and do something different. You're called to that family. Don't be wishing you're someplace or someone else. Right where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right in that spot. Jesus talks about the same idea in one of his parables on Matthew chapter 25. We spent a year and a half through the book of Matthew, so if you've been with us, you immediately remember what this parable is about. But over in Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, where Jesus is telling the story. Remember, parables are always like, this is what the kingdom of God is like, teaching us kingdom economics, kingdom values, right, how life is so much different, it's upside down. Paul's been doing the same thing with wisdom and foolishness, and Jesus says it's the same thing here. And and he says here in the parable of the talents, starting in verse 14, the kingdom, it starts with, for it will be like the kingdom of God, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. "'You have been faithful over a little. "'I will set you over much. "'Enter into the joy of your master.' "'And he also who had two talents came forward saying, "'Master, you delivered me two talents "'and here I have made two talents more.' "'And his master said, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. "'You have been faithful over a little. "'I will set you over much.' Enter into the joy of your master. Notice those two responses were the same. He didn't say, you with the five talents, well done. I gave you more, you made more. He said, no, you took what you had, you were faithful with it, and you brought back a return. And the reward is more responsibility. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Okay, notice a couple of things. Notice that this person's perception of the master shaped what he did with what he was entrusted. I knew you to be a hard man. I was afraid. He didn't squander it. Right? He didn't like lose it and came back empty-handed. He just came back with what he gave him, with nothing more. But his master answered him, "'You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed.'" Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this moment, Jesus, with his disciples, is talking about expectation that when you are called to Jesus, when you enter his kingdom, there is an expectation that you do something with what's been given. Coming to Jesus is not fire insurance, just so if there is a hell one day, you don't end up there. It is a life that begins the moment Jesus calls you. He gives you gifts, talents, abilities, spouses, children, jobs to steward well while you are here. On earth. And those expectations apply to anyone who would come after Jesus. And the principle, and what both Paul and Jesus are getting at here, is there is an expectation of faithfulness that is required. Not performance or status, but faithfulness. What will you do what God has already given to you? You don't have to be as fruitful or as talented or as productive as the people around you in order to be seen as valuable by God. That's not how it works. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly how he's made you. He knows every fiber of your being. And God's expectations of you are that you would lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. Not assigned to George not assigned to Zach, that, he would lead, that you would lead the life assigned to you with your talents, with your abilities, your personhood and personality, whatever your Myers-Briggs makeup or whatever number you are in the Enneagram, God knows that, and he has specifically equipped you for the life he is calling you to live. Now, the big question then is how do we actually figure out what that is? How do I figure out what my assignment or my calling is? And this is a whole nother like hour lecture at some point, but not today, because here in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, the answer is quite simple: The life that you are assigned to is the one you're living. How many don't raise your hands, but how many of you guys are unhappy with the life that you're living? Thinking there must be something more? There might be. God may be calling you in some more but the life that you are living now is the life that God has assigned you. Can't swap spouses. Can't get rid of your kids and trade them in for better behaved kids. The life that God has assigned you is the one you're living now. That doesn't mean there isn't growth, maturity, change that happens. We'll see that in the next couple of verses. But don't miss what God is doing here in the present because you're so fixed on what he might do in the future. Paul's first goal here is to say that when you come to Jesus, it's not your job to change everything, to change your job, to change your marital status, to change your financial status, and on and on, so that you might have more status and standing in the church. This was the original problem Paul is tackling here with the Corinthians, right? Their, their love for status, intellectual wisdom, right? their love for being seen as somebody and really something. And Paul's saying it's not your job to mess with all of that your job to faithfully live the life that God has given you. He says to continue on the life that you are living but with new purpose and new power. The joy, the joy of this passage is the simple call to steward your life faithfully. You have $5 in your bank account, you have $500,000 in your bank account. Steward that faithfully. You're single, have no kids, no attachments, steward that faithfully. You're married, have three little kids that demand all of your time and attention, steward that life faithfully. The joy of this passage is to simply steward your life faithfully. Comparison to other people will crush you. It will crush you. It will wreck your life. But faithfulness is full of joy and fruit. When you get saved, there is absolutely an expectation of growth and maturity in the kingdom. We've talked about that a ton. But the gospel teaches that Christ is enough. That it's not Christ and seminary and then you can fulfill your calling or assignment. It's not, okay, I got saved and now I have to get married. Or I have to stay single. Or I have to change this job or that job. And maybe those changes come. But your job is to be faithful with what he's given you right now. Whatever change in you that does happen, it happens from the gospel shaping you, from the inside out, the Holy Spirit doing good, long work, conforming you to be more like Jesus. And Paul gives a couple of examples on how to, how to steward this well and even what it looks like to encounter changes in your life well. Over in verse 18, the next verse down, he says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Right, so he's using two examples here, and the first one is circumcision. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. How does that happen? Use your imagination, or don't, whatever is helpful for you. Uh, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Okay, so the historical context here is helpful to know. It shows us that both sides of this camp, the circumcision camp here, felt pressure to stay, change their status. This is a bit of callback to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I follow Paul. I follow Peter, right? You guys remember this? I follow Apollos. These, there were factions in the church, and those who followed Apollos were most likely Gentiles, non-Jewish people who got saved, Right? And then the people who are following Peter particularly are usually the Jewish people, like long heritages of a Jewish life and faith. They come to know Jesus and each other are trying to convince the other ones that they need to change physically to be more Christ-like. Some Jews felt embarrassed about their marks of circumcision on their body. Some Gentiles felt the pressure to participate in the more historical form of a relationship with God by being circumcised. And Paul's challenge, this question, is, why are you using other people's marks, statuses or upbringings or experiences as the measurement of your own righteousness and sanctification and growth? Why are you conforming to the human or worldly standards and definitions for success? Why are you letting the flesh? have jurisdiction over the spiritual. God knows you. He called you. He doesn't wish that you were somebody else. He doesn't say, fine, I'll take Sherry, but I really wish she was more like Alyssa. No, call Sherry, says, I like you. The exact, the way you are. I've called you. I loved you. I created you. I want you to live that identity to the fullest, not somebody else's. What you bring to the table and your personality and personhood is vital, what Paul calls indispensable just a few chapters later. The point is, right, being Jewish, non-Jewish, being looked at or more or less spiritual isn't important. These outward religious signs aren't important. The important thing is obeying God's call and following his commands, Right, this is not a loosey-goosey call, do whatever you want. This is obeying his commands in the life he has assigned to you. That's the first example. The second he gives is around slavery, and this needs a bit of unpacking here. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant or slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let them remain with God. Stay where you were when God called your name. Were you a slave? Slavery is no roadblock to obeying and believing. I don't mean you're stuck, Paul says, and you can't leave. If you have the chance at freedom, get it. But Paul is simply trying to point out that under your new master, Jesus, you're going to experience a marvelous freedom you would have never dreamed of. On the other hand, if you were free when Christ called you, you experience a delightful enslavement to God you would have never dreamed of. When you give your life to Jesus, if you are a bondservant, a slave, an indentured servant, your newfound life in Christ is not licensed to abandon your obligations, Paul says. Now, real quick, this might be really strange and tender territory because when we think slavery, bondservants, we think maybe two things primarily. With the African slave trade that happened over centuries here, especially the birthing of our country. And the modern day, like human trafficking, sex slavery conversation. And some in past generations have twisted and tried to use this passage to somehow justify slavery. That is not the case. In fact, the entire book of Philemon is Paul's letter to a master calling for the release of a slave that ran away and Paul sent back. The point is, If you come to Jesus, you still have responsibility in this world to continue on with your obligations. If you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean you don't have to pay back your student debt. You're still on the hook for that one, right? If you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean you can go AWOL from the military. If you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you can bail on a work contract and say it's not important anymore. Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to understand that our salvation transforms us, but there is still a world we live in, and it may take some time for those conditions to change. Our job is not to feel entitled to that change, but to be faithful to Jesus in whatever context we are saved into. You don't like your life right now? The call is still to be faithful to Jesus in that life. So two warnings for you is do not over-apply this passage. Meaning, Paul is writing to a specific church at a specific time. There's a principle that is absolutely universal, right? But the work that, we're we're connected with an organization called Zoe International that does work of rescuing uh, kids and women out of human trafficking here in LA and then also in Thailand. And the work that they are doing to rescue kids and women out of human trafficking is not negated by this passage, Counseling a woman to seek shelter from an abusive husband is not negated by this passage. Encouraging an, an alcoholic or drug addict to get help is not negated by this passage. It's not, you know, if you're living in these awful patterns of unhealth and sin, stay there. That's not what Paul is getting at. The Corinthians were concerned, maybe borderline obsessed, with status And Paul is using these examples to reinforce that the only status that matters is standing before the living God. In Christ, he has redeemed your status. He knows you. You gain no increased status in the church or in front of God by altering your physical state of life upon your salvation the first warning the second warning is don't underapply this passage right it would be a mistake to say that you should continue on in an immoral relationship because of what paul is saying here but right? if you're living with a boyfriend a girlfriend and you give your life to jesus moving out seeking sexual purity is absolutely something to pursue paul is not dealing with morality in this particular passage he's dealing with the clamor for status Particularly in the church. And so, maybe for you is to think through what is our modern day example? What is our modern day circumcision or freedom? Our singleness or our marriage? A particular job over another? What do we value as more spiritual or more worthy of God's love and validation? What is the religious imposition for social change? What are those things for you? Those things that you are unsatisfied with in your life that you need to change because you think God will love you more, approve you more, validate you more, or others in the church might do the same. What is that other life you're trying to live and judge your success by? Now, all of this stuff for Paul is brought up in the broader context of, of marriage, and we we talked about that at length already we'll talk about it more next week but there is this beautiful freedom that comes from Paul in these few verses and coming out of a passage like this i think there's a couple of things to grapple with as we think about calling assignment identity whatever you want to swap in there and there's three in particular that i feel like is important for us to wrestle with today that comes out of this text and the first is to know who you're not right? Before you can know who you are, you have to know who you're not. Paul says in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Don't become bond servants of men. Don't be going to a life that is not for you, right? This is key to understanding your identity and your assignment. All of you, Paul says, slave and free were once held hostage in a sinful society. Then a huge sum was paid to ransom you from that life. So don't out of habit, slip back into that old way of life or doing what everyone else tells you. Paul is trying to get them to not be so concerned with being like somebody or something else. Don't be more Jewish. Don't be less Jewish. Know who you're not. There's a great example of this in in the story of John the Baptist. And if you have a Bible, flip over to John chapter one. It's a story worth going to just for a moment. God knew what he was getting into when he called you, by the way. He wasn't hoping you would be someone or something else, so don't try and be. In John chapter 1, we have a bit of an origin story of John the Baptist, and notice how John responds when people are questioning his identity, his calling, his assignment. Notice how he responds to them. In verse 19, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, this is the key question, who are you? It's the key question for you. Who are you? Look how John responds. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So then they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? First, before John the Baptist says who he is, he knows who he's not. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. For John, there were three no's before there were a yes. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. John the Baptist was laser focused on what he was and who he was and did not try to be something or someone else. He did not try to conform into the image of of Christ, the Messiah, that people were waiting for. He did not try to conform into the image of Elijah or the prophet. He knew what he was about. John was laser-focused and could say no to those other identities and assignments. The question for you is, what do you need to say no to to say yes to what God has assigned What do you need to say no to in your life to say yes to the life God has assigned to you? I'll help you out a little bit. If you are married, He's not assigning you, calling you to say no to your spouse. If you have kids, He's not calling you away from those kids, He's calling you towards them. What are those no's? It's not going to be disappearing from a local church, it's not going to be pulling away from community. It's not going to be living a life that runs counter to what the Bible says about how our life should be lived. Is it narrowing down for you? What are those things that you need to say no to to say yes to what God has assigned you? It's going to be something. There's always something that is going to have to make way for something else. I don't know about you guys. My life feels very full. And to say yes to something in my life and Sherry and I's life means usually saying no to a couple of things. What is Jesus asking you to do? And what are the things you need to say no to to make that happen? So first, know who you are not. Second, know who you are. Paul says in verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. What defines you as a believer is not your family, your job, the amount of money you have, or the amount of experience you have, But your identity in Christ. You're a child of the King. You are His. Know who you are. Paul says it doesn't matter what the condition of your life is, when He has called you, you belong to Jesus. That is the first and most important thing about you. The Bible says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. This means that as followers of Jesus, we have been given a new identity. No longer are we defined by what happened in our past, whether it was done to us or by us. Instead, we are a people of the future, letting what God says about us ring true in our life. Before we can fully know what our purpose, our calling, our assignment in life is, we have to press into what we know is already true of us, in the scripture This is a non-exhaustive list of identity statements from the Bible about those who are in Christ. You're wondering who am I? You're salt and light of the earth. You've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-control, not fear. You can find grace and mercy in times of need. Your life is hidden with God. I am complete. You are complete in Christ. You've been redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You are a citizen of heaven. You know that God will complete the good work he started in you. You approach God with freedom and confidence. You're his workmanship. You have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. You've been adopted as God's child. You Yeah, you are a saint. You are a saint. You are a minister of reconciliation for God, a new creation. You've been established, appointed, and sealed by God. You are a member of Christ's body, and you've been bought with a price. You belong to God. You're his temple. You're God's co-worker. You cannot be separated from the love of God. You've been chosen and appointed to bear fruit, and you are Christ's Friend and brother. As you think about what the Lord has assigned to you and who you're not, know who you are. You are a child, a son and daughter of the king who is victorious. You are a member of the kingdom that has been inaugurated and is coming in consummation. The heart of the Father for each of us, his children, is to come to know and believe who we are and who we've made to be, to know our giftings, our passions, our limitations, our hopes, dreams, and even our calling. It's in community with others and through the scriptures that we begin to learn and internalize our inheritance as children of a good Father who wants us to show us the good identities, callings, and assignments that he has for us. Know who you're not, know who you are, but most importantly, know God is with you. This is the most important thing about you, is that God is with you. Paul says in verse 24, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there let him remain with God. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, wherever you are, there you are? Have you guys ever heard that before? That's absolutely true. What is also true if you follow Jesus is wherever you are, there God is. Jesus says, I am with you always till the end of the age. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Where you are is where you're called to be. God is there. That doesn't mean life can't and shouldn't or doesn't change, but it means don't pass up what God is doing in the present because you're holding out for something better in the future. This is important, especially for all you people under the age of 35 in here. You flaky, non committal people who are looking for the next adventure. Don't pass up what God is doing here and now, even if life is not all that you want it to be, because there might be something better coming. Your identity in Christ is not tied up in your marital status or your job status or your religious history your education or your socioeconomic status, your identity in Christ comes from the finished work of Jesus applied to your life. You do not need to add anything from this world to increase your status in Christ. In maintaining contentment, you're not alone. Not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. He is with you in this assignment he He has you on. Giving your life to Jesus comes with a call to faithfulness. Remember the parable of the talents. Faithfully stewarding what God has entrusted to you. But not an expectation for you to be something or someone that you're not. As you hear this message, this you should feel freedom from the obligation to perform for those around you, to conform to look just like Jess and Tyler because they're amazing. You should feel free from the comparison trap that will crush you and suck the life out of you and be compelled to run towards Jesus and the righteousness and the life he's assigned to you. Like I said earlier, I think the joy of this passage is a simple call to steward the life that God has entrusted to you faithfully. To know that comparison will crush you and that faithfulness is full of joy and fruit. Steward the life that God has given to you. Steward the life he's entrusted to you faithfully.